I was provoked by the senseless killings that were taking place, the rape of women, the torture. So I should say I emotionally responded to the issue to the point that I did things which may be on reflection, I would not have done that. Yet I really applied my mind. So that's how the work has evolved from merely reacting to human rights violations to a position where we are now building a very broad movement of communities That is Farai Magur. He's a researcher and human rights defender who works with communities affected by mining and resources extraction in Zimbabwe. This has sometimes been a rough line of work. You will find him profiled with organizations like Frontline Defenders and Human Rights Watch. But alongside that, there's a number of very interesting and very practical questions. In the development world, we talk a lot about violence, so-called conflict minerals. But what lies beyond this? How do we ensure that communities actually benefit from natural resources extraction rather than simply being exploited? How do you get to that outcome when there's no political will, when there's a stark difference between the quote-unquote national interest and local people's interests? For Farai himself, how do you go from making noise to making a movement? How do you make that link between human rights advocacy and how policy actually happens? This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. There is a bit of noise on the line in this one, some blips and bloops, but it does clear up fairly quickly, so bear with us. Hello, Ian. Hi. (laughs) Nice to hear you finally. How are you doing? You're in uh, Mutari, is it? I'm in Mutari. Um, which is actually about um, I'm 10 minutes from the border, Mozambican border. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's home for you? Yeah. It's very nice, and I've resisted going any, anywhere else. I, I really love the place. It's, um, it's breathtaking. The scenery is wonderful. I, I love it here, and I will fight to stay on here. It's good. <laughs> it's good. And I'll start at the beginning, I guess. If you need to explain what you do for a living or, you know, with your life to someone you meet socially at the pub, let's say, at the bar. How would you do that? I would say um, for a living, I'm a researcher and a human rights defender Mm -hmm. who works with communities affected by mining and... Overall, I'm a proponent of good governance. So it is through this, the pursuit um, of this goal of promoting good governance, human security, peace in the communities that I operate in, that gives me my reason for existence. (laughs) Indeed. And where has that taken you geographically? Internationally, I should say, um, it has really taken me 
places mm. beyond what I ever thought or imagined. It has given me an opportunity to interact with very prominent people, business people, mm-hmm. politicians, academics, and activists. I've traveled to, I should say, four continents. I've been to the Americas, Brazil, United States, Canada. I've been to a wide number of countries in Europe. I've been to Asia, India, uh, Dubai, Middle East. I have crossed the continent of Africa, and um, it has helped me to to see the world. And that exposure has also strengthened my resolve in that when I travel to well-governed countries or better-governed countries, Mm. I feel even more challenged to work harder in my country because many things that we have normalized here are very abnormal in other parts of the world. And the focus within Zimbabwe, what are the main areas that you've been looking at uh, in terms of governance, you know, in in your home country? In my own country, I should say, Marange Diamond Fields was the entry point. I never got training in natural resource governance. But what happened is I went to Austria where I studied peace and conflict studies in 2006 and seven, And when I came back, that's when people were being killed about 70 kilometers south of Mutare, where I live. Mm-hmm. And uh, I talked to some of the people who had very horrendous stories of how they survived the beatings, the torture, and how they saw people being killed there. And I felt provoked to act and it was very risky. Even within the organization, uh, some we, we disagreed. Others were saying, this is too risky. We don't want to, to put our lives in danger. Mm. And um, finally, we, we, we agreed to, to work on it. And we got some support from diplomatic missions in Zimbabwe. And later on, some human rights organizations internationally began to beg us. And uh, um, a little while later, I began to realize that because the entry point was human rights. We were saying, stop killing people. Then when when the killings abated, we begin to say, oh, there is even a bigger problem here of resource plunder, the resource curse, mm. where diamonds are not benefiting the nation, let alone the local community where they are being extracted. We begin to advocate for transparency, accountability, equitable distribution of benefits from diamond mining. Then, as we made noise in Marange, other communities in Zimbabwe began to beg on us to come and hit them. So, we began to move out of Marange, not abandoning Marange, but to spread Mm-hmm. to Mutoko, which is um, in the northern part of Zimbabwe. There is black granite. 
which has been mined since 1972, but the communities remained the same. Mountains are disappearing. And uh, we began to capacitate the community to demand a share of the profits and to demand transparency and accountability. We also got calls to work with communities in the far western part of Zimbabwe, that is in Wange, Colliery. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's one of the biggest coal mines on the African continent. But again, the the coal mining, whilst the community, it suffers from the impacts of coal, it does not share the benefits of coal mining. We realized there were a lot of labor issues. The company had gone for over five years without paying the workers their full salaries. We began to see environmental issues, underground fires which are burning for many years, pollution of rivers, all those things. Um, and we began to advocate again and move towards climate change to say we need alternatives to, to coal. Since we lie in the tropics, we have a lot of solar power that we can tap into and and, and, and move away from from dirty fossil energy. Mm-hmm. We also moved to Darwindale, where there is platinum, and the government is the mortgaged multi-billion platinum reserves to the Russians in exchange for arms. Yep. And uh, we begin to say again: Is 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 do we really is is, is military hardware the priority for Zimbabwe? at the moment can't government invest these resources in things that improve human security health education agriculture and the like and finally we also work in uh, in the mashingo area south central zimbabwe where there is lithium mm-hmm. uh, which is being illicitly explo- exported and the nation is losing in that much of the lithium is not declared. Uh, it is exported as petalite, but it has got, um, the, the petalite has got lithium bearing ore. Mm-hmm. So again, we are trying to, government is actually taking up the report that we did last year uh, with Trust Africa, which I, I did the research, which is exposing the illicit financial flows in the lithium sector. Yeah, I read um, sort of the mission statement. I don't know if it's the official mission statement on the uh, uh, the CNRG's website that you work with with resource rich but extremely poor communities to whom natural resource abundance is causing suffering, and that uh, seemed like quite a uh, concise formulation to me. This phrase, the the resource curse that um, we hear in development economics, and sort of. It's thought of at a, at a national level, but the the description of that or the application of that at the community level struck me as is very true or very consistent with experience elsewhere in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see similar situations where resources have been pulled out of the ground for twenty or thirty years, but you know, human development, community development remains the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, our experience shows that. There is this contestation between the local interest and the so-called national 
national interest mm. where the ruling elites are the embodiment of what are the so-called national interest. They use their political muscle to negotiate mining contracts, to extract in the communities without consultation with the community. The concept of free prior informed consent has never been accepted here. Mm. So when the local community it raises its voice, government points to national interest. And yet, mining itself leaves a huge ecological debt in the communities where the mining itself is taking place. And when everything has been extracted, you have these huge pits which the communities to contend with. You have to contend with pollution of rivers. And mining is leading actually to new poverty in that livestock are dying. In the case of Marange, we have a situation where children are drowning in a river adjacent to the place where the displaced people have been housed. There's no water, tap water. So they go to fetch the water in the river. Mm -hmm. And uh, some children drown there and they die. Keep it all. There is no corporate social responsibility. Everything they extract from the community, they take it away. So this contradiction between the local interest and the national interest, it's, it's very profound when we look at why mining areas are even poorer than areas which do not have resources at all. Mm. So that's why we are trying to build power from below to strengthen the voice of the local communities so that they can challenge uh, the so-called national interest. I'll come back to the um, the sort of community-driven approach in, in a second because that's sort of the most interesting or most important thing, I think. But just to, mm -hmm. to comment that we were discussing before we started taping about Central African Republic and I have worked in, in Congo and other places and the minerals issue, or the natural resources issue is often conceptualized in these very binary or simplistic terms as, as conflict diamonds, as conflict uh, timber in the case of, of Congo, and this idea that it's uh, the problem is that um, it's used to finance war effectively, and if you could just stop that, then the problem is solved. But clearly that has not been the case, and all of the issues you describe sort of form part of the governance challenge, I think, elsewhere, as in Zimbabwe, you know, just declaring that Diamonds, in the case of Marange, are, are conflict-free, which is, is very debatable, is part of the problem, sure, but it's only a small part of the problem, I think. There are a lot more dimensions to ensuring that that um, actually leads to some benefit to the communities in the areas where those diamonds are found. Yes. CNRG is a member of the Kimberley Process Civil Side Coalition, mm -hmm. and we've been battling it with the Kimberley Process to say, in as much as the KP claims that Zimbabwe has satisfied the minimum standards of the KP, mm. 
and the Zimbabwe's diamonds are conflict-free. As far as we are concerned as a Zimbabwean organization, there are many dimensions of conflict mm. around Marange diamonds which cannot be ignored. First and foremost, there is the issue of torture, which is ongoing right now. And the KP is now saying human rights is not a KP or to human rights organizations mm. uh, to report such cases. We have the case of displacement without compensation. Over 1,400 families were displaced. They were never compensated. Mm -hmm. We have the case of resource plunder or resource theft, where government is extracting these resources and they never sharing or accounting to the community. So if that is not conflict, then I don't really know what conflict is all about. So... <laughs> These are, these are the glaring conflicts which the Kimberley process is trying to hide behind their finger. Yes, indeed. Uh, and that's yes or no question. Are they KP uh, certified or are they not? Is, uh, is probably a much too limited a way of thinking about these sets of uh, challenges, I would think. There's a range of different extractives, mostly uh, issues around Zimbabwe. And you mentioned that the, the entry point was human rights, uh, sort of the worst kinds of human rights violations, but it's, your approach has sort of broadened over time or evolved over time. What drove that? Did you have uh, early successes and you were building on those successes you know, as the sort of vision and mission evolved over time? What was, what was driving that? First and foremost, I was born with a very political mind, <laughs> I yep. should say. I was I was critical um, about general politics in Zimbabwe, even uh, when I was in, in, in secondary school. When I got to the university, uh, I became the president of the Student Representative Council in 1998. And that's when I got into contact with some very radical student leaders in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I became very proud to be associated with the, the student movement and um, began to also sharpen my public speaking skills and the like. Then uh, when I finished my first degree, I was a teacher and I taught for just less than two years. And I felt like the repression in the education sector where I did not have freedom to say what I want politically mm. was too much. I could not stomach it. So I left teaching in 2002. Then I went for a degree in peace and governance, which gave me some something like an intellectual capital to, to really begin to think politically and uh, in, a, in, a, in a bit of a mature way above student politics. When I finished my first uh, graduate studies, I, I then went to, to Austria, which not only enhanced my intellectual capacity, but also living in Europe was very eye-opening to me. It was, it was a brand new experience for me. Mm. Interacting with politicians, with the citizens in Europe, I just felt like I need to go and do something when I return home. So when I came back home, that's when the Marange debacle was in its initial stages. 
And uh, I came back August 2007, then November 2008, that's when government deployed the military in Marangi, and there was the massacre. Then, initially, I was provoked by the senseless killings that were taking place, the rape of women, the torture. So I should say I emotionally responded to the issue. Mm-hmm to the point that I did things which maybe on reflection, I would not have done those things. Yet I really applied my mind. Mm. I ended up going into the mortuary, you know, trying to expose the gunshot wounds on, on cops that had been brought from Marange. I became a dead man walking. I felt that I really, my mission is to expose these things uh, at whatever cost, no matter the consequences, such that it became a matter of when and not if I was going to be arrested. Mm. So 2009, that was when my, my, my teeth were cut in terms of human rights work. That's when I did a lot of work in 2009. Right. I went to the Kimberley Process meeting in Namibia where I exposed the, the human rights violations, the killings, in front of a very big Zimbabwe delegation there, which were in the audience. When I came back to Zimbabwe, uh, there was a lot of surveillance around me. Then a lot of diplomatic missions, especially from the West, were also watching over me. And uh, finally, I got arrested as expected, in, mm-hmm. in, in June 2010. When I got arrested, I got a lot of support from human rights organizations around the world. That's when my work kind of outgrew my anticipation. I was stretched. There was a lot of demand from the global media. They wanted mm-hmm. to interview me. Mm-hmm human rights organizations, they wanted interviews with me, Uh, embassies were calling for me, Mm -hmm. and my capacity was stretched. They were not prepared for that. But I was kind of thrown into the deep end. And I tried to withdraw or kind of to, to lie low, but I was too visible such that even if I would change my self online, they would look for the one I'm now using mm-hmm. and they will still call me. So later on, this global um, groundswell of support became also a team of capacity building for me. They began to teach me a lot of things about natural resource governance. I became acquainted with various movements that are fighting injustice, corruption, and environmental pollution and the like. So I began to see that my understanding about the sector began to broaden as I engaged with these networks, as I read their reports, and uh, I would see that what the, the struggles being fought in South Africa can easily be fought in Zimbabwe. It's only that the local people don't have the knowledge 
the, the information which the South Africans had. So our work became more of capacity building, civic education, kind of opening the eyes of the communities to see reality, to see the injustice that they are suffering. So that's how the work has evolved from merely reacting to human rights violations to a position where we are now building a very broad movement of communities demanding a seat on the table, demanding a fair share of the proceeds from their resources. So this is the journey that we have walked uh, from reaction to proaction. Mm. That's how I put it. No, that's very... Uh... It's a very uh, articulate way of putting it. I mean, when you when you look back, would you would you change anything, or was that sort of fierier, younger version of you? Is that what was needed at the time? I mean, these these are terrible human rights abuses. Was that the right approach at that time and appropriate under the circumstances? I think, in a way, I'm still the very same person. <laughs> Uh, I'm still very radical and very strongly opinionated about human rights and, and the things that I advocate for. It's only that now I'm more informed than I was when I started. Mm. There are things definitely that I would change. For instance, the team around me, when I started, I had people around me, but they did not have the same ideas with me. And that created a lot of loopholes around me, exposed me to dangers. So in terms of my personal security, I would do things differently. I think I was a bit more reckless at the mm. beginning than I am now. And uh, the way I communicate the message, I think I'm getting a little bit more tactical than I was at the beginning. At the beginning, I was just screaming that I, I get attention to the issues that I'm, 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 I'm calling on. But now I think I can spend one week writing a one-page document, yep. trying to refine it. So those are some of the things that, that the transitions that I've seen in the way that I execute my work. Yeah, no, I think we all um, start off a bit, uh, a bit passionate, a bit fiery. In my case, certainly a bit, uh, a bit careless. <laughs> Ten or twelve years ago, you sort of learn to uh, <laughs> maybe balance that a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> does that does that encompass a more Maybe collaborative is not the right word, but a different kind of relationship with governmental and elite actors. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about the national interest and actors at that level. And obviously, at some point, you have to engage with these people. So has your philosophy there changed over the years, or do you still try to sort of keep distance and keep independence? We definitely try to engage and at the same time to ensure that we remain independent and 
our clients, if I'm to use the word, mm-hmm. are the communities. So everything we do, we do it for the benefit of the communities that we save. So if engagement with the government will ensure that the grievances of the community are heard, we will engage. But uh, we are also very much alive to the fact that governments, uh, the interests of the government, especially the Zimbabwe government, are very much opposed to the interests of the community in ourselves. At the same time, dialogue is inescapable if you want a solution. Actually, uh, Ian, one of the biggest criticisms we have received over the years is that we don't offer a solution. We Mm. simply state problems and we don't engage with the people who must make the decisions. So lately, we have began to try to create forums where government is invited and we speak. Only three days ago, we had a very big security conference in Mutare, which was a direct response to the demonstration that we organized on April 23 in Marangi. And the company called for a a big security conference, which brought together the Minister of Defense, the Minister of Home Affairs, the Minister of State Security, the Minister of Mines, provincial government in Manicaland, civil society and community-based organizations. I'll send you the press statement that we issued today and Mm -hmm. some pictures. We even show soldiers in camouflage at Mm -hmm. our meeting. So that's uh, how we are trying to to engage. But we remain very, very tough. But at the same time, we feel that you can't avoid dialogue if you really want to make a big impact. You mentioned interacting with a number of of international institutions and, and people is there a sort of inspiration or, or a model or a set of tactics um, that you have learned from elsewhere as, as you've evolved your approach? Um, we learned different things from different people. First, I was, I was honored by Human Rights Watch uh, with their very, uh, the highest award in 2011, mm-hmm. the Alison Forges Award for Extraordinary Activism in New York. That gave me a very good opportunity to engage with Human Rights Watch. And until now, I'm still very much engaged with them. Mm -hmm. So we learn from Human Rights Watch in terms of how they use their research to get an audience with power. Right. When they produce their reports, the reports are very hard-hitting. They are very tough. But they have found a way whereby when they produce a report that report creates a platform for them to speak to truth to power and make recommendations. And this is the model that we are using, which created even the forum that was there on Friday last week, where we had a demonstration, we wrote a public statement, and then... After that, we were called for a meeting with this mining company uh, on the 4th of May, Mm. where 
they proposed that can we have a stakeholder security meeting and we said it's a very good idea and we went and we spoke at that conference and we even give them what we believe are very good recommendations so that is a skill that we learned from human rights watch that you don't just speak in a silo you need to create a room mm. to influence the decision uh, of 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 the of the company or the government that you are targeting there is also the international center on nonviolent conflict um, which is based in the united states mm-hmm. with whom i've been working since 2016 they also help us with nonviolent strategies and uh, it is their the the influence that led to the 23 april demonstration in marangi so we we learn um, from a number of organizations and uh, that is shaping our our tactics mm. in terms of seeking audience with the government yeah no, that makes uh, a lot of sense in terms of outcomes or or what improved governance would look like you mentioned sort of taking uh, examples or or inspiration from other contexts and the phrase you use was better governed countries I mean to your mind where are the points of reference if you're looking for steps forward you know practical steps forward in terms of resource governance in Zimbabwe do you look in the region uh, you mentioned South Africa do you look across sub-saharan Africa are you looking uh, maybe somewhere else entirely in the world you know what's the what's a realistic and useful example or or, or set of practices that you can draw on in Africa, Africa, you look at Botswana. Mm-hmm. Um, Botswana is a model in terms of how to manage a natural resource. They are, I think, the second biggest producer of rough diamonds in the world after Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, but the diamonds in Botswana are not owned by the ruling elites, like we have in Zimbabwe, in Angola, um, and uh, which other country, like Democratic Republic of Congo, where the, 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 the resources do not benefit the people, they benefit the, the, the rebel movements and the ruling elites. So every Mutswana understands that the relative prosperity uh, they are enjoying is because of the good governance in the diamond sector. Mm. I was part of the Kimberley Process Review Mission to Botswana in twenty, I think, twenty twelve. Uh, we saw that even the police they do their job in the diamond sector. The Bank of Botswana it does its job independently. The Botswana Revenue Authority, they work like a machinery. They work like an engine. Mm-hmm. It's well-coordinated. Even during the 2008 um, economic uh, recession, Botswana was not affected. They've got very good reserves in offshore accounts. So that is a model which every African country 
needs to emulate. And then he, um, they are also very transparent even with their information. Mm-hmm. In the Kimberley process, Botswana is always the leader in terms of submitting the annual reports with the detailed information. So I, I, I respect that. And then Australia, um, they are very advanced in terms of uh, even mining technology itself. I'm Australian, uh, by the way. And mining... Oh, really? <laughs> I am, yes. I haven't, haven't lived there in 20 years, but I, I, am in, I am Australian according to my passport. Okay, 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 yeah. So um, uh, in the contribution of, of mining uh, to the GDP of Australia mm-hmm. is about 8.5 to 9%, and it employs around 2% of the workforce, the yep. total workforce. workforce. So th- that, to me, uh, it, it clearly uh, shows that Australia is a leader in the mining sector, and uh, it has managed to ensure that mining also has got linkages with the economy. It's not just an extractivist economy mm. where they just export raw minerals, but they also into value addition of the minerals. So that's what I think. Um, and, and Australia has also been very generous with knowledge sharing. Every year they give scholarships to Africans who go there to study the, the mining sector in Australia. So I think if we engage with the Australian government, they are even willing to to share expertise with African countries that want to learn more about how to improve their their mineral governance sector. So those are some of the models which, if I were the president of Zimbabwe, <laughs> I would really engage right. the governments of these two countries and 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 see how we can tap into their expertise. Yeah. Well, well coming back to the the politics of this because obviously that is the that's the challenge more than the uh the knowledge it's the uh the political difficulty of making things happen. So the the model you described of of sort of creating a little bit of pressure and then uh using that to open up space to change policies or change practices of of companies and of and of the government. Do you have a, an example where that model has sort of worked quite well, you know, where you were very happy with the outcome or relatively happy with the outcome? Here in Zimbabwe, I really don't know any other community which is staged a struggle and, uh, and, and managed to, to get results. We are, re- we are virtually venturing into an unknown territory. Mm. Because what has happened in the past is government has responded with the heavy-handedness whenever the community tried to rise up. We have tried to organize demonstrations which completely never took off because government would call the community organizers and tell them in no uncertain terms that if you go ahead and demonstrate, we are going to shoot and kill you. So that also shows the vested interests of the government, the state in the mining sector. So we have to continue with the struggle and hoping again is to hope that, that these struggles will yield some results for the communities. That's quite tough, no? It's not the most uh, 
positive picture in terms of your own motivation, you know, after a, a fairly long time doing this, um, that must be quite hard in terms of staying motivated and, and, and staying engaged uh, in that sort of environment. Yeah, it's um, it's very tough. It's it's disheartening. I'll tell you that in, you know, men, my heart is in the communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, many times when I spend the day in the field and I see the hope of the people in in the message that we are bringing to them, the acceptance of our message to the community. And I look at the the thinking of the government, of the politicians. I'm I'm depressed Mm. when I come back home from some of these meetings. I come home depressed to say, what more can we do to push this agenda? You come back with an image of that woman who was venting her anger and her frustration. That man, some of the words continue to ring in your mind for days after that workshop. And then you, you go and speak to these bureaucrats and try to, to, to raise the issue. I'll tell you a story. Two years ago, I went to a place called Ada Transa, where the community was displaced from Marangi. Mm-hmm. And like I told you earlier on, there is no, they were promised free water, but they were, later on, the, the taps were disconnected because the community could not pay. They were not working. They had no source of income. So I I passed through this deep well. It was not a deep well, actually. It was a on the surface. It was less than 47 meters deep. And I saw this woman, this old woman, she was in her 70s, and she was fetching water from this unprotected well. And the water was slowly welling up from the ground, and it would take about 30 minutes for a bucket, a 20-liter bucket, to fill up. So when I left that place and came back to town, I saw the provincial administrator withdrawing cash at the Standard Chartered Bank. And I walked up to him, and I asked him, Sir, I've been to Adatransau. And I saw, this is what I saw. I saw this old woman trying to fetch water from me and protect it well, where cows are also drinking. And you are the one who displaced these people. What are you thinking about the issue of access to safe drinking water for these people? Anyway, the very harsh exchange. I'm sure. And after that, <laughs> just leave me alone, my friend. I am here to withdraw money and not to quarrel with you. Just leave me alone. And, and he went to withdraw his money. So... These are kind of frustrations that we encounter sometimes when you are dealing with the community. You 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 really endear yourself with the community such that their problems become your problem. And then you come to the government and the government is so callous, they really feel it's none of their business. Yeah. I've spoken with several people. Uh, who shared sort of similar experiences dealing with gross human rights violations and this sort of stuff and and in which there was very little progress, you know, there was very little seriousness on the political side to address these issues. How do you, how do you manage that? I mean, how do you stay 
motivated? How do you stay sane, continue to show up to work every day? Keep that in perspective. Um, that's a very interesting uh, question, uh, which when you ask it, I also begin to ask myself this. <laughs> the same question. There's probably no perfect answer to that one. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about it. But what keeps me motivated, I've got a very clear vision that things can be done differently. It's like uh, the famous Martin Luther King speech that I've been to the top of the mountain and I've seen the promised land. So in my mind, it's very clear that not only Zimbabwe, but the whole of Africa, it can transform itself very rapidly if the leadership develop this mindset that let's use our resources to improve the welfare of our people on the continent. So the things that we are calling for, they are even easier to do than to go to Europe begging for arms. We are simply saying, take care of what is in your backyard before uh, you go to your neighbor begging for help. So the, the, the self-evident nature of the things that we are calling for makes me very enthusiastic that what I'm saying, it makes perfect sense. And I've also moved to a, a legacy issue where I also want to be remembered when I'm gone that I stood up for what is right and I risked my life for something that is right. So I have the belief that even if the current politicians do not take our views into consideration in their planning, in their governance, maybe if we write these things down, who knows, maybe in the next five to 10 years, we shall have a truly pro-people government. Already we are being, I've been invited by several opposition political parties to contrib contribute to their mining policies. Mm. Parliamentarians have also called me. They phoned me. They've sent me their drafts. I've been called to parliament to, to, to give evidence. So all this clearly shows that somehow some people in decision-making positions are taking the things that we are saying seriously. Mm. So that gives me some little bit of enthusiasm that our labor is not in vain. I guess in a slightly more positive framing, when you look back at the last decade or so, uh, back to 2008, uh, in what is the, the piece of work that you're most proud of that sort of had the most tangible outcomes, you know, against that slightly negative uh, picture that we started with? Um, was there something that you felt you made, a, a, well, not you individually, of course, but in partnership with communities where you, you feel like there was a real significant change? Yes. Um, 
the reduction in, in human rights violations, the killings in Chiazwa, Marangi, mm-hmm. I think it was largely a, a direct result of our work. At first, the government was in denial, and the government was actually suspended from selling diamonds by the Kimberley process in 2009 yep. in Namibia, where I also went to give evidence. So to me, that, that, that was one of the highlights of my career. And in 2016, when President Robert Mugabe acknowledged that 15 billion had been stolen from Marangi, mm. again, the national attention turned to us at CNRG that you guys, thank you for being consistent. Finally, the president has acknowledged what you have always been saying. And this is why in 2018, I was called to parliament to speak in parliament about um, what I think uh, were the means by which the money was stolen. So that was another very huge highlight in my career to be invited to parliament to give evidence. And the evidence which I gave is actually leading to further probing by the parliament because I indicated people that they must invite to to testify. Mm. So that was one of the of the of the highlights. Given the what you said earlier that the focus is on um the voice and the needs of, of local communities and empowering them. How do you balance that with, you know, enabling people at the community level who maybe aren't as articulate or as educated or, or as equipped to express their views? You know, how do you balance your role with giving those communities a direct say, you know, expressing themselves in their own voice? That, that's a very important question, actually. We have lived under a dictatorship for 38 years, and we're still counting. We're still under a dictatorship. And, um, but under Robert Mugabe, there was, he did everything in the book to stifle freedom of expression and opinion, and he empowered the police to be very brutal against anybody who tried to speak out. So, to undo that culture of repression which the people have lived in for many years is not easy, and it can be done overnight. We struggle even to to bring people to our first meeting in a community. They would say, you want to put my life at risk. Mm. So, we have a lot of explaining to do to persuade the people to open up to us. And then there is the issue of the messaging itself. Once you have capacitated the people, you need also to to create some talking points for them, the the main issues that need to be articulated. That may take a year or two before a community is now strong to speak on its own. For instance, the Maranga community now, they, they are becoming very vocal. But we started working with them early 2017. 
up to now. And we're still working on that. It's the same with Wange, the, the women in Wange. We started working with them in 2016. And it's now that they are beginning to, to speak out. So we give ourselves about one to two years of capacity building and also identification of people who, who can be the mouthpiece of the community, who can speak out. But some people are naturally shy. And it also depends with the, 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 the acumen of the person, whether they, mm-hmm. they, they have the capacity to, to speak out. Yeah, so it's a, it's a process. And whenever we start working with the community, we look forward to the time when the community become vocal to, to, to express itself without fear. I guess that depends on working sort of at the community level, but also working uh, at the governmental level to create space for that, to try and ensure that it's not met with repression, that it's not met with violence. I guess you must have to smooth the way to some extent rather than put people at, at risk. It depends with the with the community. There is uh, there are communities where government departments in that community can easily interact with civil society, and areas where we are not even allowed to be seen in the community. A place like Marange, our work is clandestine. We we go in unnoticed and do our workshop and withdraw. In that place, we can't tell government that we are here or invite them to to our meetings because we may end up in soup. But in areas like Wange, we have stakeholders meetings where even government officials, they participate. And we, we create that forum where there is common understanding between government and the people. So each community is different. It has different characteristics. And that's one of the things that we have to do. It is to map the actors in every community and, 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 and assess the political temperature in that community. And that will help us to devise the appropriate strategy of intervention. Yes. Mm. Um, and, and, and the risk factor is always very high, so we always try to, to lessen the, 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 the risk um, by doing our thorough homework, uh, study the actors, and then find an appropriate way of intervening. Maybe one last point of interest for me. I mean, you are Zimbabwean, of course, and, and uh, are very conscious of the risks, some of which... A personal risks for yourself. And what do you say to international organizations or to individuals even who are interested in this? Um, what's your one piece of advice to, to international institutions who do this stuff? Yeah, I really think there is need to engage at different levels. There are international organizations like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, you know, they've got an international clout. They've got a very powerful political muscle. This must always try as much as they can to engage with government at the highest level. 
but working in collaboration with local actors like ourselves, sometimes where government is inaccessible to its own citizens, international actors have got very easy access to mm. the same. So it is very important for them to pick up issues that are coming from the ground and, and, and take them to the government. Normally, hard states like the Zimbabwean state, it's very weak when it engages with international actors. It's hard on its citizens, but very weak when it comes to engagement or when it's pressured by international organizations. For instance, when I was arrested in 2010, international actors played a very important role to demand my release from mm. custody. So there's a need for organizations like frontline defenders to keep a very close eye on, on human rights defenders in Zimbabwe, uh, working in the natural resource sector, because it's a highly contested terrain. Mm -hmm. Number two, capacitating organizations working on the ground. You find that this one is a very serious issue. Majority of organizations working in the natural resource sector here don't have capacity even to write a report. They don't have capacity even to investigate human rights violations. Mm. So a lot of violations, they go unreported or are trivialized simply because we lack the capacity to write competent reports. And finally, the resource factor. Um, a lot of organizations can do more, but there is the limitation of resources, especially now that donors, donor funds are, sh are shrinking, actually, especially mm. in this context. And that is creating a lot of problems for us mm. in terms of engagement. There are places we want to go where there is need, but we can't because uh, we don't have the resources. We need money for fuel, money for accommodation when you go to the field. Very last thing on my list was a question I ask everybody. Do you have a book or publication that you recommend if you if you were to gift someone a book that was influential and important for you, what would it be? The book that I'm really enjoying reading now is a book that is called Beyond Development. It talks about the need for an alternative mode of development, a move away from extractivism. It's actually provoking, it's simply provoking a new discussion, a new debate about the whole development concept because a lot of destruction is taking place in the name of development. People are losing their homes in the name of development. People are being killed in the name of development. Rivers are being polluted, forests are disappearing in the name of development. Land is being acquired arbitrarily for development purposes. So the book is a call for government, civil society, international institutions to have a, a rethink about development. All right, good one. I will add that to the list. I've run through sort of quite a lot of uh, of topics there and, and 
uh, taken a lot of your time. Any anything else you wanted to to mention? And I can obviously splice it into the main interview. But anything you sort of had in mind, but we didn't touch on? I would just say that we have a new government that came to power in 2017. Indeed, and they have got a new mantra, a new catchword. Zimbabwe is open for business. Basically, Zimbabwe is on sale. And we have seen a spike in terms of investors coming to this country. And most of them are coming to the mining sector. And none of the deals has been made public. All of them are very secretive deals and potentially benefiting only the ruling elites. So it is my fear that the new dispensation is going to even worsen the situation of communities to be affected by mining. I fear that there's going to be more displacement of communities. I fear that more land is going to be expropriated in favor of mining. So... These are worries and our concerns as an organization as CNRG that this Zimbabwe is open for business thing. Mm. Um, it's going to increase the vulnerability of the already vulnerable people. Mm. And at the same time, a model of mining is failed to even attract funding into the banking sector of Zimbabwe. There is a very big cash crisis in the country, despite the fact that we have got over 800 operating mines in the country at the moment. So that is my concern, the direction which the new government is taking. It appears they are actually deepening the concept of extractivism in Zimbabwe. And we are likely to have more problems than we already having now. For anyone listening who is is interested in, in following this, where would you direct them? I mean, you the CNRG has a website, of course, but any anywhere else that uh, we can keep track of this sort of stuff? So our website is actually currently going uh, through um, under um, it's under construction right now. Okay. We are reconstructing it here. So I think in the next two weeks or so, we should be having new stuff on the website. Okay. So yes. web- website, Facebook. Hopefully, uh, hopefully your prediction will uh, be pessimistic and the context will not <laughs> deteriorate. We will see. Hopefully, too. That's right. Hope for the best, right? That's what we were saying earlier. <laughs> I really thank you, Ian, for the call and for profiling my story. Um, oh, thank you. I feel very, very, very much. Thank you. It's. Super interesting for me. It's a bit outside my usual area, so um, it's uh, my privilege, really, to to listen to you. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this 
Podcast thing only really works by word of mouth, so if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes, or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks, and bye for now.